are listening to Real Presence Radio. In the next hour, we have Dr. Jan George from Sacred Heart Productions, teaching on the Gospel of St. Luke. Dr. George, a retired university teacher of literature, has a Master of Theology from the University of Dallas. She is with us today covering the following two topics. From Luke chapter 22 through Luke 23 verse 31. The Last Supper and the Passion of Christ. Tune in at this time each week when Dr. George will be walking us through the chapters of the third gospel from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study, produced by Sacred Heart Productions. Accompanying lessons for each week can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org, along with lessons and study guides for other New Testament books. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures program is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Throughout the Old Testament, God speaks in signs and figures and types. When we talk about the Old Covenant, we speak of a certain typology, a divine pedagogy by which God is revealing his saving deeds to Israel and speaking through them in preparation for the coming of Christ, who will fulfill everything that God reveals in the Old Testament. So God works, he reveals, he intervenes in history of humankind, we call it salvation history, in the Old Covenant, so that these types, what we call signs or figures or types, are all prefigurements of what God would accomplish in the fullness of time in the person of his incarnate Son. Therefore, we always read the Old Testament in the crucified and risen Christ, because only in Christ can we finally go back and fully understand what God was saying in the Old Testament, even though he spoke in true ways, in in history, in the deeds, in word and in deed. So that what happens in salvation history is, in fact, historical. It is true. It is literal. But these things, as true as they are in history, remain in a certain sense provisional, earthly, while they are, while the Old Testament speaks of real people and real saving events of God, they point to realities which are heavenly. So the Israel of the Old Testament does not yet possess the heavenly realities, even though Israel understands that God has revealed to them a covenant, a promise, a promised land which he gives them, a kingdom, a kingship through the election of David, a temple, all of these things. God is speaking about these things, and they're marvelous deeds in the Old Testament. But Israel could not fathom how they would be fulfilled. So far did they surpass Israel's understanding that the Jews, as we well know, there was a great tension in them. They grappled with it. They recoiled from it. To imagine that everything that God had revealed to them would be fulfilled in one person, a person 
in their midst, a person who seemed to be just like them, it was beyond them to grasp, and so they struggled. In spite of the fact they were drawn to Christ, his teachings they knew were filled with wisdom, profound wisdom. His works were marvelous. He performed miracles, the likes of which they had never seen. So something in their hearts wanted to believe, and yet they could not, because Christ was revealing to them that everything that they had received from God was now fulfilled, finished in a sense, consummated in a sense, and that he was revealing a new covenant. And so they felt that everything was was sort of falling away from them. They were losing hold of it. Now, God, in fulfilling the Old Testament, he does not become dismissive of it. He doesn't just relegate it to some corner where it's of no importance at all. The Old Testament retains a certain intrinsic value. We can continue to go back to the Old Testament, and in fact, we should go back to it, because by pondering the mysteries God revealed in the Old Testament, we come to a deeper understanding of all that God has given to us in Christ the Son. So, whether we are speaking of the promise and the covenant, whether we are speaking of Israel's amazing escape from the enemy, from Egypt, how God delivered Israel from Egypt, the Passover, the Exodus, the promised land that he led them into, their 40 years of wandering in the desert, the election of David, the revelation of the kingdom of God, and the temple, eventually the destruction of the temple, the people being led into exile, and then the return of the small remnant. All of these things in the Old Testament are fulfilled in the person of Christ, and now, because we are the body of Christ, in the life of his church. It's an amazing thing. So when we look at the institution of the Eucharist, which Christ instituted at the Last Supper, we begin by going back in our memories to what God had revealed in the Old Testament. It is no coincidence whatsoever that the Last Supper, which Jesus celebrated with his apostles, occurs precisely at the time of the Passover. The passion and death of Christ, precisely at the Jewish Passover, when all the people had come to Jerusalem because they were commanded, they had to go to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. God gathered his people for the fulfillment of the Passover in Christ, his son. And so, Jesus tells his apostles, now, the Jews, the apostles, of course, were all Jews, They understood the preparations. They understood the Passover meal that all Jews, by law, were to celebrate. Now, why did they celebrate it? Because it was to remember. It was to commemorate the saving actions of God on behalf of Israel in the Old Testament. When God, in the Old Testament, would intervene in human history, in the history of his people, and do something amazing, something miraculous, he would say to them, I want you to remember this. I want you to celebrate this in perpetuity. God is constantly saying to his people, remember, remember, remember. Now, one of the reasons we must remember is because by remembering well, by remembering accurately, by remembering faithfully, we keep the promise 
in our mind. It is ever on our mind and in our heart. So that when the promise is fulfilled, we are prepared to receive it. Because we are already hoping for it, living it, thinking about it day in and day out. So God, first he he literally and historically, delivers Israel from the hand of the enemy. And the first thing that happens is this this hasty departure from Egypt. And so quickly must they depart that they have to eat unleavened bread. But unleavened bread becomes one of those signs in sacred scripture of a pure kind of bread, a bread that does not have the corruption of leavening. It's an unleavened bread, and God commands them to eat unleavened bread in memorial of this. There's also the the Passover that takes place at night, and how God tells them to take the unblemished lamb, the blood from the unblemished lamb, which they sacrificed for the Passover meal, and to mark their houses. The houses are signs pointing to to us. We are the dwelling places for God in the new covenant. To mark our houses with the blood of the lamb, so that the angel of death, the destroyer, would pass over our homes, our dwelling places, and we would be unscathed. Our firstborn would not be killed. Our families would be untouched. We would be protected by the blood of the unblemished lamb. Then they have the exodus, and God parts the waters of death. After the fall, we no longer, man no longer lived in God and God in man. We no longer had the life of the Holy Spirit in us. Therefore, we couldn't survive in water, so to speak. Only fish can. That's one of the reasons that Christ sometimes is represented in the symbol of a fish. So we could not do this. And Israel well understood, mankind understood, that that we couldn't live in water. They learned this lesson with Noah, when God destroyed the earth with water and saved those who were in the ark that he had commanded Noah to build. So when Israel departs Egypt, God parts the waters of death for them, and they pass through unscathed on dry land, something that now, a mystery that now, is fulfilled in the sacrament of baptism. But everything that happened, that truly happened, the Old Testament is not mythology. It is salvation history. But it is a pedagogy teaching God's chosen people about what he is doing and will do in a more magnificent way in the person of his son. And he wanted them to remember these things. Now, they also ate, of course, the manna in the desert, which is a kind of, it's a figure or type of the unleavened bread. Now, in all of this, God tells his people, every year they must celebrate the Passover. And the Passover had certain signs that were critical to the celebration of the Passover. The unblemished lamb that would be eaten, and the unleavened bread. Right at this point, when Jesus is to enter the Paschal Mystery, he tells his apostles, who themselves and their families, they're preparing to celebrate the Passover. But there's another mystery here. And if we piece together the details of the Gospels, we discover that the Passover occurred, that they were preparing, was actually on Saturday. We know Jesus died on Friday. And St. John talks about how the Passion of Christ, when he was taken into the Praetorium after that early morning trial before the Sanhedrin, that all this happened on the preparation day. 
the preparation day to celebrate the Passover meal, which actually then would be Friday. Jesus celebrates the Passover in anticipation what would have been a day before, what we celebrate now in the Easter Triduum on Holy Thursday. The Easter Triduum, that tri-liturgy, that magnificent three-part liturgy that we celebrate. And in that liturgy, we have, of course, the reading of the Passion. We have the whole reading of Salvation History at the Easter Vigil. We are remembering, we are remembering. So Christ tells his apostles that they will celebrate the Passover on Holy Thursday. And on Holy Thursday, for us it is Holy Thursday now, the institution of the Last Supper and the institution of the new priesthood, the new covenant in Jesus Christ. But this is a day before the Jews are. Now, there is a very deep mystery that God is speaking in this. Jesus is already making present the mystery that will actually be fulfilled the next day, the Passover of the Jews, because the Last Supper is the fulfillment of the Jewish Passover feast, as the church tells us. And so, Jesus' Last Supper is the fulfillment of the Jewish Passover, which is fulfilled at the Last Supper, and the fruits of the redemption are already made present. Because, in fact, the apostles eat the flesh of Christ, the unblemished Lamb of God, at the Last Supper. This is an amazing mystery. Amazing. Under the sign of bread, like the Eucharist we receive to this day, which is the flesh of Christ, still under the sign of bread. God is very gentle in the revelation of his mystery. He changes the substance, but he leaves the appearance. And it's part also of the humility and meekness of God that he comes to us in the form of, under the appearance of, bread, and then he changes the very substance so that we consume the flesh of Christ. Now, when Jesus says at the Last Supper, take this and eat, this is my body, he tells the apostles. It is very clearly recorded in the New Testament. In fact, we have five times in the New Testament, Jesus' teaching, God's teaching on the Eucharist. All three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record an almost identical institution narrative of the Eucharist. And the signs and symbols that God gives us for this sacrament of the Eucharist, the bread, the wine, and the words which Jesus say must be pronounced, these are the signs, but now in the New Covenant, these signs, unlike the signs of the Old Covenant, are truly efficacious. They are effective. The sign is there to teach us, to speak to us, to explain The sign is there, but the sign is an efficacious sign. It is also an instrument. God makes present in the sign the reality itself. So in that sign of bread in the Eucharist and wine of the Eucharist, under the appearance of bread and wine, we have the reality of the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ a profound sacrament that was instituted at the Last Supper. It's an amazing thing. So what happens in the New Covenant is that we have these efficacious signs, that's what sacraments are, efficacious signs instituted by Christ and entrusted to his apostles, 
his apostolic church, but they're entrusted to the apostles, by which divine life is dispensed to us. We now enter life in God. We share in God's own life. We participate in it. It's the life of grace, which we have in the new covenant, but which Israel did not have in the old covenant. This is why the church always speaks of the old covenant as imperfect and provisional. It was a covenant of signs and figures and types that remain important for their value. They remain important because God, in fact, was working on behalf of Israel and saving Israel. But they did not yet possess the heavenly realities to which these signs pointed. So at the Last Supper, Jesus both symbolized the Paschal offering and also made it really present. The Passover that they eat at the Last Supper is fulfilled in the person of Christ on the cross on Good Friday. So that the apostles are already enjoying the fruits of the redemption at the Last Supper, which will be fulfilled the next day in the Passion of Christ. It's an amazing moment in Scripture. We say, well, how can that be that man could receive the fruits of something which would actually occur later in time? But God has, in sacred Scripture, revealed that he does this. He acts this way in more than one situation. When events touching very closely upon the mystery of our salvation in Christ, when God has these occur in time, God, who is outside time, time itself is created by God for the sake of man and our salvation, God can do what he wills with regard to time. A perfect example of this is the fact that God creates Mary to be his mother. He creates her immaculately. Mary is conceived immaculately in the womb of her mother through the merits of her son, who hasn't suffered and died yet. Through the merits of the redemption, Mary is saved and made perfect from the moment of her conception. Even in the Old Testament, when the king of Judah, Hezekiah, is on his deathbed, and he is told that he has this three days, this passion, and that his life will be asked of him. And he he prays to God, and, and God sends the prophet Isaiah to him. And Isaiah says, God will give you a sign. This is recorded not only in the book of Isaiah, but also in the second book of Kings. And he goes to him, and God says to him, Do you want me to have time go forward for you or backward to show you that I am the God who saves? And Hezekiah thinks, and he says, well, it's easier to make time go forward. I want you to make time go backward. And so God does this, and he gets this marvelous sign. So God is already saying, I can go back. I can take something, and I can make the fruits of that present at an earlier point in time to reveal my own power and glory. So there's something very beautiful in this. Thank you for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you're just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the Gospel of St. Luke from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. Up next, Dr. George will continue teaching about the Last Supper. And now, back to Dr. George. Now, why? Why does Christ make present the Eucharist, the fruits of the redemption? Why does he fulfill the Passover 
and already entrusted to his apostles the night before he dies. The church explains to us, first, to perpetuate the sacrifice of the cross through all generations, throughout all ages, until he comes again. It's very important that we note that Christ says to his apostles that they must do this in perpetuity, is what he's saying. Do this, God says. Do this in remembrance of me, of this saving work of God. When God commands us to do something, and to do it again and again and again so that we remember, he wants us to taste the goodness of the Lord and not forget what God has done for us, what God is doing for us, and what God intends to do for us in the remainder of time of our life on earth. The Jews had a rather unique understanding of the concept of memory because God had spoken to them about this. And when we talk about doing something as a memorial or in remembrance of or to commemorate, all the feasts of the Old Testament are based upon this concept of commemoration, of memorial. And so when we speak of doing something in remembrance, we have to, as Christians, speak of it in the context of divine revelation. To remember is not just to recall something in the past and then let it go as if it's done, it's past, it's over with. When God does something, there is a power that remains in that action of God. But we need to have faith. So the Jews understood that when they celebrated the great feast of which the Passover was one of their three great feasts, and when they remembered the great events of salvation history, that it not only recalled to mind the greatness of God, but they tasted all over again the goodness of the Lord and the freedom that they had because the one true God was their God. He liberated them from Egypt. He said, I have saved you from the hand of of your enemy. Do you not think that I will protect you every day from your enemy? And they would remember this. And in faith then, they would go forward with confidence in God with trust in God. Now, we do something similarly in the New Covenant, but we have something far greater in the New Covenant. Our way of remembering, of participating in what God tells us is a memorial, is far greater because not only do we remember and taste the goodness of the Lord through certain actual graces that God gives us to do so, but the reality itself is made present again. And we know this to be true. It's what the apostles, it's what the very first Christians understood and celebrated from the first days of the life of the church. They knew that when they gathered together and they celebrated the Eucharist, it came to be called the Eucharist. It's the liturgy of thanksgiving. That's what the word in Greek means, thanksgiving. They celebrated the Eucharist together and they ate and drank the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. They knew that. They believed the words of Jesus. The words that we have recorded in the three institution narratives of the three synoptic Gospels, also recorded, but in a different context, in the Gospel of St. John. That's the famous chapter 6 of St. John, where he records Jesus' teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. And he says, I am the bread come down from heaven. And anyone who eats this bread will live forever, he tells us. And the bread that I give is my flesh for the life of the world. Jesus is absolutely clear 
on the fact that the bread from heaven we eat is his flesh. Do we have faith enough to know this? Without that faith, we cannot approach the Eucharist. We should not approach the Eucharist. As St. Paul tells us, and in St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 11, that's where we have the fifth. The fifth, really, what is like an institution narrative. St. John's is not an institution narrative, but it's Christ's teaching that we need to eat his flesh and drink his blood so that we can have eternal life in us. St. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, says, the tradition that was passed on to me, because remember, St. Paul is not part of this little band of apostles. He is Saul. He's the one who's persecuting the church and killing Christians after Christ has ascended into heaven. This is Paul who says, the tradition that has been handed on to me And that which the Lord himself taught me is this. And then St. Paul gives the institution narrative all over again. St. Paul's institution narrative in his first letter to the Corinthians is actually the earliest institution narrative, ironically, in sacred scripture. The first letter to the Corinthians actually was recorded, written, existed before the gospel accounts that we have. Now, the apostles were teaching this and living the Eucharist in those early days of the church. But in terms of what was recorded, it was St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians that was in that institution narrative that was set down in writing first. So Christ then institutes the Eucharist to perpetuate the sacrifice of the cross and so, as the church tells us, to entrust to his spouse, his beloved spouse, the church, a memorial of his death and resurrection. He is handing over to the church this mystery he has been speaking about, the mystery he spoke about in Capernaum. He said, I am the living bread come down from heaven, and this bread that I give is my flesh. He gives his flesh then. His apostles eat the flesh of Christ at the Last Supper. The church, in speaking of this, incredible mystery of how the whole Passover The Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread, which Israel celebrated for centuries and centuries with its particular signs and prayers and cup of blessing, everything. In fact, in understanding the Last Supper, we should want to rush back to the Old Testament and read about everything that took place with that and and the memorial that God established for his people in the Passover because all those details, every detail in Scripture, will unfold for us the mystery revealed in Christ. The church says, By celebrating the Last Supper with his apostles in the course of the Passover meal, Jesus gave the Jewish Passover its definitive meaning. Jesus' passing over to his Father. Now you see, the Passover, remember that Israel had to pass over from earthly life into the promised land. Israel had to pass through the waters of death, which she couldn't do, so God simply separated them for her. Jesus fulfills that passing over. His passing over from his earthly life back to the Father is on Friday. His passing through the waters of death. Jesus passes through death on Good Friday. And he comes through it unscathed because he is a divine person. But he truly suffers and dies. So Jesus is passing over to his Father by his death and resurrection. The new Passover, that's the new Passover, is anticipated in the Last Supper, the church tells us, 
and celebrated in the Eucharist, which fulfills the Jewish Passover. And even for us now, when we eat the Eucharist, when we celebrate the Eucharist, it anticipates, because we are still anticipating, everything's fulfilled in Christ, but we do not yet lay hold of the whole mystery. We're not yet living it. We're still in groaning and travail on earth. So every time we celebrate this Passover, the new one, the Eucharist, for us, we taste heaven. It anticipates for us the final Passover of the church, of which we are members, of the church in glory. So in a sense, we can say, truly, we can say, that when we eat the Eucharist, we are already tasting heaven before we even get there, ahead of time. God says, I'll give you a taste of heaven right now. Do you want me to have the sun go back so many paces or so many steps? He says, okay. And what we do is we consume Christ, we enter the mysteries of Christ, we live in Christ, and because of that, we already, in a certain, very real way, live in heaven. It's not like in the Old Testament when God made the sun go back so many steps for Hezekiah. That's all it was, was an earthly, it was an earthly miracle. But for us, it's real and true. Now, in understanding this, we begin to understand just how important is the Holy Spirit's role in the church's liturgy. Because wherever the Son is, whatever the Son is doing, the Spirit is there. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. They are three persons indeed, but one God. So where one is, the three are because he is one God. One God doing everything. It is the desire and the work of the Spirit in the heart of the church that we may live from the life of the risen Christ. What is it that the Holy Spirit wants to do? The Holy Spirit's mission continues. Christ's mission continues on earth. The work of our redemption is carried out every time the Eucharist is celebrated. The work of the redemption is carried out when we are configured to Christ and we are sent out into the world as leaven in that bread, as a holy kind of leaven in a new kind of bread. So what is it that the Holy Spirit in his mission is doing? The Holy Spirit in the mission of the church, simply put, the church tells us, is to draw people to encounter Christ. In every single liturgy of the New Covenant, every liturgy of the New Covenant is an encounter between Christ and his church. In a sense, they collaborate in this work, which is a work of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is preparing, even right now today, preparing all of us for the Sunday liturgy, the high liturgy of the week, the day that we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. We may not think about it during our work week. We should be. But God is preparing us to hear the gospel this Sunday. He is preparing us already, our minds and hearts. He's preparing us to hear the reading from the Old Testament, to have the psalm that we hear sung penetrate our heart, to hear the the letters of Paul, to hear the, the readings from the New Testament, to hear the prayers of the priest, to hear God speak to us personally in the homily of the priest. He's preparing us. So that when we get to church and all of a sudden we find ourselves awakened or surprised or we hear that God is speaking directly to us in his homily, it's no accident. He has been quietly preparing us all week long. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. What the Holy Spirit wants for every person on the face of the earth is that we have a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. Why? Because it is that encounter 
that transforms the world. No one can have a personal encounter with Jesus Christ and come away unchanged. It's not possible. Nothing is impossible for God. He himself reveals. It's recorded in scripture. Nothing is impossible for God. Now, we can make an encounter with Christ turn into nothing because we set up a barrier. We reject him. We have no faith in him. We have no faith in what he has said or what he is doing. We can go to Sunday Mass and maybe we don't believe in the Eucharist. So what happens, as scripture says, in those places where Jesus found no faith, he could work no miracles. God is waiting to work miracles for us. But the Holy Spirit searches out faith in the hearts of believers. And in faith, then, draws us into these encounters with Christ. So, as the Church says in explaining the mission of the Holy Spirit and the liturgy of the Church, His mission is to prepare the assembly to encounter Christ, a preparation that is ongoing, to recall and manifest Christ to the faith of the people. So, we learn about Christ, we hear new things, we hear a renewed call to holiness, to embracing Christ, to entering into prayer more faithfully, whatever it happens to be. So, The Holy Spirit recalls the mystery to us and makes present that mystery in all the sacraments, particularly the liturgy of the Eucharist, and to make the saving work of Christ present to us so that we, in coming into communion with salvation, our Savior, we are transformed, we are changed. We cannot have communion. We cannot receive communion with Jesus Christ in his body, blood, soul, and divinity, and come away unchanged. It's impossible. It's impossible. Although, if we approach and receive communion, without recognizing the body, St. Paul says, we eat and drink our own condemnation. We must acknowledge the body. And there's really a twofold meaning there. First, we have to recognize the body of our Lord, truly present. But we also must recognize the command of charity. We must recognize we are one member of a great body to whom we have certain duties and obligations. That's why St. Justin, a very early bishop of the church, tells us that in speaking of the Eucharist, that no one may partake of the Eucharist unless he believes that which we teach is true. The person must believe that which we, the apostolic church, the apostles, the bishops teaching in the church. In other words, they have to believe all the doctrines of the church. Unless, secondly, that person has received baptism for the forgiveness of sins and thus new birth, the person has to already be able to enter that communion with God through baptism. Without baptism, we cannot receive the Eucharist. And thirdly, that person must live the life of faith, must live in keeping with everything Christ taught. We cannot pick and choose among the teachings of Christ, especially when it's in regard to serious or grave matters. It's very tied to that true communion with God, which is exactly what the Eucharist is. Thank you for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you're just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the Gospel of St. Luke from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this final segment, Dr. George will be covering the Passion of Christ. And now, back to Dr. George. When we go on to 
to look at the remainder of the Passion of Christ as recorded by the Gospel writers, we discover such a wealth of material that it's impossible for any of us to exhaust that treasury of divine revelation recorded by the the sacred writers regarding the Passion of Christ. We know that particularly when we get to Holy Week in the Church's liturgical year, beginning with Palm Sunday or Passion Sunday and then on through Holy Week, that we, on several occasions, we have these lengthy readings of the Passion of Christ. And even as we're hearing them, and they're very long, we tend to think, oh, I know exactly what's going to happen next. I know exactly what he's going to say next. And we become so familiar. And it's all too easy for us to start to skim over the surface of the Passion, thinking, I'm familiar with it, I know it, without allowing the Holy Spirit to draw us down into the profound details. There is nothing in Scripture that God has ordained to be recorded that does not have its purpose. And we can't possibly, I mean, if we comb the Passion accounts, they are chock full of details, profound details, that even in a lifetime we cannot exhaust the mystery of. One of these, of course, we encounter in the Gospel of St. Luke, where he has a detail concerning Christ's agony in the garden, which only Luke inserts in there. And so we'll spend just a few minutes on this detail today. St. Luke records that in Jesus' agony in the garden, he sweat blood. And in fact, in the tradition of the church, it talks about the seven times in Christ's life where he shed his blood for mankind, beginning with his circumcision. And most of them are in the Passion, all the way to the piercing of the heart of Christ on the cross. But the agony in the garden is one of them, and it's based upon what St. Luke says. Now, what happened to Jesus is very, very rare. There's some people who think it's, it's not possible, but it's been recorded in divine revelation. And in fact, if we search out carefully certain recorded documents, we will find in history that there are isolated, there are very rare cases when a person has actually sweat blood. There are times of great trauma to the body, to the mind, the soul, the heart, the whole psyche, the entire person enters into this passion, which is so deep and unrelenting that as the blood vessels begin to dilate, first they constrict and the anxiety increases and gets even greater, and then they begin to dilate, and they start to break. And what happens is that the blood mixes in with the sweat and comes out in droplets through the pores of the person. Now, we know, because you can read in certain medical books, that there's actually a medical term for this, hematohydrosis, which means, it's from the Greek hemato, hema referring to blood, hydrosis, excessive or profound sweating. So it's a profound or excessive sweating with blood mixed into it. Leonardo da Vinci actually recorded at the turn of the 15th century of a soldier. This very phenomenon was seen and witnessed by some people in a soldier who was evidently on the front line of a battle that was about to take place, a very gruesome battle. We can imagine these battles in ancient days where where men on a battlefield had these awful-looking weapons and would just charge at the blow of the bugle and run into each other, and everybody was hacking and swinging and 
And there was a man who, waiting for this, anticipating, being so many paces away from the enemy, having to face them, and that waiting for the consummation of the battle. And he was seen to have blood, droplets of blood, sweat from his pores. So we know historically that this is something that can actually happen in extreme situations. St. Luke does say immediately before, where he records that, an angel appeared to Jesus coming from heaven to give him strength. Then St. Luke says, in his anguish he prayed even more earnestly, and his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. St. Luke was a physician. St. Luke, the physician, either knew or found out later or whatever, but he knew enough and under divine inspiration, under divine guidance, he made sure that that detail was recorded here. Now, we wonder this whole mystery of the passion of Christ is an amazing thing because God becomes man and he takes our humanity to himself and he truly suffers and dies. Christ does. And he's one person, yet Christ has two natures, as the church tells us. He has a human and a divine nature. He has a human and a divine will. And part of the mystery of the passion, if I can just read a few sentences from one of the paragraphs of the Catechism, part of the mystery of this is that we must remember that Christ's two wills, he had two wills, he also had two natural operations of those wills, divine and human, They were perfectly united always, never confused, not mixed together, but never separated or divided. That Christ, this is part of the mystery of our redemption, that the Word made flesh willed humanly in obedience to the Father all that he decided divinely with the Father and the Holy Spirit from all eternity. Isn't that beautiful? The Word made flesh. I'm saying this almost verbatim from the Catechism. The Word made flesh willed humanly in obedience to his Father all that he had decided divinely with the Father and the Holy Spirit for our salvation. Therefore, when Jesus prays, my Father, he says, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. There is something so horrible about the fact that Jesus is suffering and must pass through death. We recoil from death, and we don't need to if we're in Christ. That We've already passed through the worst death in baptism. The death remaining for us is our physical death. Then what is that? As St. Paul says, death, where is your sting now? Now that Christ has passed through death. So we don't worry about the physical death anymore. But for Christ to pass through death, we can only imagine, when we think of the passion of Christ, it's not simply a terrible, terrible death that a man on earth suffered. Christ is a divine person. We cannot fathom the capacity, the infinite magnitude, the depth, the sensitivity of his soul, of his heart. We can't, we don't understand. Even contemplating this in heaven, we will never fully grasp the magnitude of what God has done for us in Christ. And so the church tells us that when Jesus prays, my father, let this cup pass from me, so horrible is it that he sweat blood in praying this prayer, the church says, Jesus thus expresses the horror that death represented for his human nature. Like ours, like our nature, Jesus' human nature is destined for eternal life. We recoil from death. It's natural to us. We're made for life, not for death. But unlike our nature, 
Jesus's is perfectly exempt from sin. He has no sin. He's perfect. He's innocent. Death would have been, to say it's contrary to Christ is to grossly understate the matter. Now, sin is the cause of death. Remember, he takes, for our salvation, he takes our humanity, our fallen humanity to himself, so that he suffers for us. He suffers to fulfill justice. It's as if to say that Christ suffers the wrath of God. The punishment due to man for our sin, Christ takes upon himself, the perfect one, the innocent one. He suffers the wrath of God that was due to us. He sweat blood in the agony, anticipating what he must undergo. And in doing that, he allows us to pass through death then, unscathed. God was revealing this from the beginning. His nature has been assumed by the divine person of the author of life, the living one. This is Christ, the author of life, the living one, and he must pass through this terrible suffering and death. This is partly why Jesus says to the women of Jerusalem when he's carrying the cross, he speaks of this and he says, they do not understand. The day will come when they will say to the mountains fall on us and to the hills cover us. And he says, if this is what they will say when the wood is green, what will they say when it's dry? Now Christ is the living tree, the vine. And he says, if this is so horrible for the tree that's green, how do you think you're going to fare as dry wood? And that's why he says to the women, weep not for me, weep for yourselves and your children. Because we too still have to undergo our own portion of the Paschal mystery. And we don't have a chance of getting through it unless we are drinking from the vine. Because when that, when that all-consuming fire comes, Jesus also refers to that. There is reference to this in both the prophet Ezekiel and also the prophet Hosea. But through the prophet Ezekiel, he said, I am sending an unquenchable fire over the whole earth, God says, because you're a people of a divided heart. You have turned away from me. I gave you the promised land. I've given you everything. And he says, and you turn and follow false gods. You build altars to other gods and sacred pillars. The richer you become, the more you pour out your riches on these other things. You don't turn to me. And yet I have provided for everything. He says, but I am sending a fire upon earth that will devour every green tree and every dry tree. Now, that's fulfilled in the person of Christ. And in a sense, it's fulfilled in everyone who's configured to Christ. The green trees, those living trees that remain on earth. But God says, woe to the trees that are dry. It's like John the Baptist speaking. He says, when that wind will blow over the threshing floor. And he says, and if you're straw, you would just vanish. St. Peter speaks of this. When he speaks of the new heavens and the new earth, there is an all-consuming fire coming. That's why Jesus says, I have come, it's recorded by St. Luke, I have come to bring fire to the earth and how I wish it were blazing already. It's the fire of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, if we are dry wood, it's a painful fire, a devouring fire. The purifying fire of the Holy Spirit is painful at first until, until we have that living life of Christ in us. Yes, we still are in groaning and travail on earth as the church is, But it's not that devastating kind of pain where we say to the mountains, fall on us. Just let me die now. This is too terrible. I cannot bear it. Jesus says of the final days, there will be some when the signs are in the sun and moon and stars and the waves of the earth and so on. He says they will die of fright because they won't even be able to withstand the signs. And the signs are pointing to the second coming of Christ. He says they won't even be able to endure the signs. So in this 
consuming fire. In the end, the heavens and the earth as we know it will be consumed. But if we have the life of God in us, we will pass through that consuming fire, which is actually the fire of divine love. It is a purifying fire. It is an eternal fire. We will not be devoured by it and die. We will pass through the fire and live forever. It's a purifying fire. It's the fire that we want. It's the fire of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is speaking of this throughout his passion. The evangelists record just a few words here and a few words there. We don't have the whole of the passion recorded. We have pieces, but God gives us what he wants us to have. But even to take these momentary reflections, these allusions that Christ makes back to the prophets of the Old Testament, it's well worth our time to go and to read the prophets to see what God said to Israel and then to ponder the meaning of them in the fullness of Jesus Christ. Finally then, a few words about the whole process of the Passion and how Christ is handed over. The Jews, his own people, hand him over to the Gentiles. Everything in the Passion, everything that is revealed about the figures, the actual historical figures that participated in Christ's Passion, who had a role in Christ's suffering or in condemning him to death, all the people who were against Christ did so with sin in their hearts. We can never know the measure of culpability, the measure of sin. We know for a fact that personal sin is present. The scriptures record that. Because no one can stand against God and not have sin. We sin to stand against God. But what we can't do is judge the the personal, the degree of culpability of any of the people that participated in the Passion, nor the judgment of their souls. Having said that, Part of what God is doing, he's doing many things through the revelation of the Passion. We are to ponder this because there is a way in which each of us, by virtue of the sin of our lives, is present at the Passion of Christ. If Christ did not suffer the punishment due to our sins, our own personal sins, then we have not been ransomed from death. But he paid the ransom for everyone. Therefore, each of us in all of our sins, was personally present to Christ in his passion. We were all there. And there are many different ways that people enter into the passion of Christ. And God puts up the passion of Christ to us as a mirror. We enter into it. But we see in how the Jews responded to him, how Herod did, how Pilate did. We see movements of heart. We see hardness of heart. We see hatred. We see unbelief. We see contempt and mockery. We see betrayal. We see all the terrible kinds of things man does in responding to truth incarnate in our presence. And this is why the church, in describing this, says it's precisely in the Passion, when the mercy of Christ is about to vanquish sin, that sin most clearly manifests its violence, and its many forms. And there's a way in which this remains true for all of us. Just when God gets closest to us, just when we come face to face and we have to make a decision, how are we going to respond? Are we going to die to sin, put to death the sin in ourselves, or are we going to rear up and strike out at God because what He is trying to give us, the gift He is giving us, we think demands too much of us. 
in our pride, in our hatred, in our stubbornness, whatever the reasons are. All the reasons are there. We see them in the people in the scriptures. And so we find unbelief, murderous hatred, Judas's betrayal, which was so bitter to Christ, even the betrayal of Peter and his disciples. The apostles fled the cross, except for John. The church says, at the very hour of darkness, the very hour of the prince of the world, the very hour when the prince of the world thinks he's finally done it, he's really done it, that he has collaborated through human sin in putting to death the Son of God. At this very hour, the church tells us, the sacrifice of Christ secretly becomes, God is so so meek and humble that at his finest moment, he still speaks quietly in the suffering and death of his son. This is why the prophet Isaiah says he went like a lamb to the slaughter, like a sheep silent to the shearer. So the sacrifice of Christ secretly becomes the source from which the forgiveness of our sins will pour forth inexhaustibly. It's amazing. And so God is constantly inviting us through the work of the Holy Spirit to find our place because in a sense we continue always to have a place in the passion of Christ because we're not yet completely purified of sin. There's always the residue of sin that remains in us. So we go through, we walk through the whole of the passion of Christ, how the Jews hated him so much. The Jews wanted Pilate to crucify him. They wanted him dead. You know what's interesting about this is that according to their law, they could have stoned him to death. But the Jews wanted Jesus to be crucified. And the Romans had taken away from the Jews. They had no right to crucify according to the law. Only the Romans could decree a crucifixion of a person. The Jews did not have that power. However, in their law, they were permitted to stone a blasphemer or someone who was a false prophet to death. Now, what is their accusation against Christ? That he's a blasphemer. They said he calls himself God, the Son of God. Their accusation was precisely that he is a blasphemer and a false prophet. The law said that he should be stoned to death. Now, they had tried stoning him to death during his public ministry, but it's no longer good enough. They hate him so much that they want him to suffer the absolute worst kind of death known in the ancient world, the most horrible, the most tortuous kind of death. That's what they wanted. So what they do is they hand him over, the Jews hand him over to a pagan world who really can hardly even understand Christ. Pilate keeps asking him, well, so are you king or not? Are you king of the Jews? I'm hearing these things. So Jesus first is handed to Annas, who is not the high priest. He was a high priest, but he was known historically to be a very powerful figure. He had five sons and a son-in-law, and his son-in-law, Caiaphas, was high priest that year. We know there was a lot of corruption in the priesthood, and we know at that time that Annas worked. He collaborated with the Roman authority. They arranged for who would be given that power as high priest. It was arranged, which is why the sons and the son-in-law Caiaphas deferred to Annas. Notice that the first time Jesus has to go before trial, so to speak, it's not yet the trial of the Sanhedrin, but they send him to Annas, not to Caiaphas. Then the guard of Annas hits Christ across the face when he tries to respond. Then he sends him to his son-in-law Caiaphas to deal with him. Eventually, Christ is tried by the Sanhedrin. But the Sanhedrin then send him to Herod, who is king of the Jews. 
Herod, of course, Herod's delighted to see him. He wants him to work some miracles for him. It's like an opportunity to see some magic or something. So he does what he can with Jesus, but Jesus does not respond to Herod. And for this, then Herod himself, along with his guards, St. John tells us, along with his guards, they mock him, they dress him in a robe, they spat upon him. Then he is sent to Pilate. He goes to Pilate, he goes to Herod, he goes back to Pilate. The point with Pilate is that time and time again, Pilate says, I do not see guilt in this man. His own conscience told him he could not find guilt. He questioned Christ. Do you remember the Jews didn't want to go into the praetorium because they said, we'll be defiled, we can't eat the Passover meal. And then scripture records, so Pilate went into the praetorium and then he called Jesus to him. Jesus goes into the praetorium. He's that obedient. He submits, he goes in, he's questioned by Pilate. Pilate cannot find guilt in him. Pilate hands Jesus over to the Jews because of his cowardice. He is afraid of the Jews. He is afraid when they threaten to report him to Caesar, say, well, he says he's king. And and so they challenge. The Jewish authorities know what they do. They challenge Pilate by saying, are you going to put up with this? Somebody who challenges the authority of Caesar. So as we go through the Passion one by one, we find in there the things, the sin in the heart of man that prevents us from putting to death the sin in ourselves. We allow it to go on living. But to embrace Christ means death to self. And that kind of death is repentance and conversion whereby we enter into the life of Christ and therefore into the life of the resurrection. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study on Real Presence Radio. Lessons, study guides, and other material can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org. Please tune in next time while we continue the Gospel of St. Luke. Dr. George will be covering the following three topics from Luke chapter 23, verse 32, through chapter 24. Jesus' last words. Second, Jesus dies and is buried. And third, the road to Emmaus. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and his love for his bride, the church. Presence Radio wants to honor our fathers. As Catholics, we see our priests as spiritual fathers. We have so many great priests in our listening area who model and guide us to a closer relationship with our Heavenly Father. Each week on Real Presence Live, we will honor our spiritual fathers with a dozen donuts donated by a local business to share with their staff. And of course, a good father would want to share. Let us know who you would like to honor, and each week we will draw a name to share stories of great spiritual fathers. Visit yourcatholicradiostation.com to honor your father today.